It's awesome to be with you guys this morning. We are in, and man, just to have Pastor Yaisel here, just as a side note, is so cool. I know Greg already told a story. I want to tell one quick story about Cuba too before we start our sermon today. You want to know the ultimate example of how Cuban Christians are loving their community? One of the things that happened in the hurricane was the top roof on the church building came off and fell into the courtyard and damaged the house that Yaisel lives in. And you know what they did with the materials for the roof? They took them apart and gave them to people in the community whose roofs were damaged. I mean, if that's not like the ultimate metaphor for what the church is supposed to be doing, uh, I don't know what is. So we are in the last week of the Heirs of Treason section of Isaiah. This is week four. As you guys have heard already, this series is divided into three parts. The first one is, is called Heirs of Treason, and we're wrapping that up today. And as with every week, I'm covering more material than can possibly be covered just on a Sunday morning. So I want to encourage you, be in the reading plan. Be reading this book on your own. Be in a small group. There is so much to get out of this book, and, and we're just going to be able to scratch the surface today. This, today's section starts off with a song about a vineyard. And before we even read it, I want to remind you guys of something we talked about at the beginning, and that's that when these prophets speak, and Isaiah in particular, you're very rarely going to get just a straightforward thought or idea. What they primarily do is they give images. They give you pictures of things, and then they move you from that to the kind of idea behind it. So I want to encourage you, for this whole series, but today especially, enter into the imaginative world of Isaiah. Don't jump straight to your interpretation. That's kind of what the Western mind wants to do. Let Isaiah put a picture in your mind and then let him walk you through to what it means, okay? Isaiah 5 starts like this. He says, let me sing a song for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So what Isaiah wants you to picture is a vineyard that's been planted with an incredible amount of care. The owner of this vineyard picks the perfect place. It's a fertile land. He clears out all of the stones, which is not an easy job. Those of you familiar with yard work know how that goes. And in Israel, it's even harder. <laughs> clears it out, builds a, a wall around it and a watchtower to keep it safe. He does everything. What more could he have done for the vineyard? And then he looks for it to yield grapes, and instead he gets wild grapes. Now, in English... You read that, and it's like, ooh, wild grapes. That's exotic and fancy. Maybe he planted Zinfandel and some wild Cabernet grapes kind of popped up in there. That's not at all what's going on in Hebrew. The word for wild grapes is beusim, and it's, it's not so much that they're wild, it's that they are disgusting and useless. It means rotten, putrid, nasty grapes. Kevin Kersenave and I were talking about the, the passage this week, and he, he was calling them stinkberries. I don't know if that's a thing or not. It might just be a Kevin thing. It would be a better translation. The point is this vineyard owner wanted grapes and he got something that was completely disgusting and useless. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. 
I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Because this vineyard's not producing, the owner is going to take away all its protection and it's going to get smashed and destroyed. When you see briars and thorns, anything in particular come to your mind? Think week one. Think Genesis 3. This is curse language. Remember, God created good creation, and because of man's rebellion, there's a curse on creation, and that curse in Genesis 3 is described as involving thorns and thistles. This is uncreation language that Isaiah is using. Next, Isaiah is going to give us the interpretation of this brutal mock love song that he just sang. He says, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Surprise, surprise. The vineyard is Israel. If you've been here for the last three weeks, you were probably expecting that, right? The bad vineyard that's producing bad grapes, it's the people of God. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. There's something going on in the Hebrew here that is incredibly forceful and poetic. This is poetry that you can't quite see in English. What he says is he says, He looked for mishpat, justice, but behold, mishpak, bloodshed. He looked for sedekah, righteousness, but behold, seekah, an outcry. You see the poetry, the forcefulness of that? It's almost like a pun. And the force of it, don't get hung up on like, what does he mean by an outcry? What does he mean by bloodshed? It's poetic. And the point is, I wanted justice and righteousness, and I got the opposite. I wanted good grapes, and I got nasty, stinking worthless grapes. Real quickly, um, Isaac talked about this a couple weeks ago, but the Hebrew idea of justice, this idea of mishpat and tzedakah, justice and righteousness, goes beyond kind of our modern English definition of justice. When we talk about justice, we typically mean that if somebody does something wrong, they get punished for what they did, right? That's the idea that we think of when we think of justice. The Hebrew idea of justice, mishpat, includes that, but is actually much bigger than that. It goes beyond just correcting wrongdoing and says that if someone, a person made in the image of God, is suffering, is being brought below what they deserve as a a human being with value because God made them, justice says we lift them up. So it's not just bringing the guilty down, it's also lifting the downtrodden up. It's incredibly important to this book. And if you missed the sermon two weeks ago when Isaac talked about this, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to it because that concept becomes so important for the rest of this book and for the rest of today. So he wanted a people, God wanted a people who would live with justice and righteousness, who would lift the downtrodden. And he did everything for them, planted them in a fertile place, put a wall around them, and then he looked for justice and got bloodshed. It's an incredibly powerful metaphor. This whole song is just like one more kind of recapitulation of the story of God and his covenant with Israel. Now, wit flows straight into a series of woes, and these woes take up the rest of chapter five, and there's seven of them, but you only get six of them in chapter five. The seventh one has been strategically moved to chapter 10. We'll get there in a little bit, but you get six in a row, and they're kind of like a more straightforward explanation of what God's problem is with Israel. He says, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Israel had a law. We talked about this a little bit in week one. A law called the Jubilee. And what was supposed to happen is every 50 years, so, so about once in your lifetime, 
you freed all of your slaves, you repaid all of your debts, and any land that you had bought from another Israelite, you returned to them. So it's, it's a really crazy idea for modern Americans. But the idea was that it was like this giant reset button that would remind all of Israel that the land belongs to God, not them. And that's, that's explicit in the law when the Jubilee is described. The idea is you don't own the vineyard. The vineyard is God's. This woe makes it crystal clear that what God sees when he looks at Israel is people who, instead of doing that, they are accumulating more and more for themselves. And this word picture is is so powerful because you have to imagine a person who is just adding room after room to his house and adding field after field to his property until everyone else is pushed so far out that he's literally by himself. He says, that's what you guys are like. It's this selfish accumulation of more and more and more at the expense of the people who need something. Next he says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Right after this he says, They do this, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord. So the idea here is of people who who pursue hedonism and pleasure at the expense of what God is really about. It's a cheerful sermon so far, right? (laughs) These people are so concerned with pleasure and with joy and with filling themselves up that they have neglected what God wants them to do. This next one is, 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 the imagery is just so disturbing. He says, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. You have to picture what he's saying. This is people who who love sin and evil so much that they pull it towards themselves like it's on a cart rope. And while they do that, they dare God to do something about it. That's what this language at the bottom is. I mean, how brutal is that? These are people who are pulling sin towards themselves. He says, Israel, you love sin so much, you draw it towards yourself and you say, do something about it, God. It's terrifying. Now, this next one kind of makes it incredibly plain, and you've probably heard this verse before, many of you. Isaiah says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Isaiah's not describing people who ignore right and wrong or people who like get confused about what right and wrong are. He's talking about people who have reversed the categories. They take something that's evil and say that it's good. They take something that's good and they say that it's evil. Does this sound at all familiar to you guys? Somebody said, like our country. (laughs) When you look at the world around you, do you see people who are calling evil good and calling good evil? We could sit here and like come up with example after example of this that are really obvious, but the most disturbing part about this is, is think about the context. What is Isaiah's main complaint about Israel? His main complaint about Israel is that they don't care about the poor. They don't care about the downtrodden and the suffering and the miserable. They accumulate things for themselves and ignore the needs of other people and ignore the mission of God. Now, I don't doubt at all 
that this whole calling good evil and calling evil good thing includes some of the more obvious things that are going on in our culture right now, and we need to hold the line on those things. But I would ask you to think about as we continue, because it's going it's to come back up later, where are some other sneakier areas where our culture has redefined good and evil, and we as Christians have just kind of gone along with their definitions? Woe to those who add house to house and field to field until there's no more room and you're forced to dwell in the land alone. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Keep that thought in your mind as we continue. The the last woe of chapter five, this is the sixth woe. Remember, there's a seventh one coming later. He says, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Anybody know anybody like that? This is like, I had a lot of friends like this in college. Heroes at drinking wine and and valiant men and mixing strong drink. They acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his sedekah. That's a really good kind of summary statement of all of these woes because, again, it's a picture of somebody who is all about his own pleasure, all about filling himself up with joy and happiness and, and drunkenness and neglecting the innocent who are suffering. It's incredibly harsh, incredibly brutal. Isaiah says, this is what the grapes that God's vineyard is producing are like. They're rotten. Now, this chapter about woes runs straight into Isaiah chapter 6, which Isaiah, which Isaac, not Isaiah, Isaac, he's a good preacher, but he's not Isaiah, everybody. <laughs> Isaac last week preached Isaiah chapter 6, and in Isaiah 6, you get Isaiah seeing this vision of God himself sitting on a throne in the temple. You guys remember this? If you weren't here last week, you've got to listen to the podcast. It's such an incredible chapter. And, and the, the idea, we don't have time to go all the way over it, but you know that while everything else is falling apart, Isaiah goes, oh, God is on the throne. He's on the throne right now. And, and God sends Isaiah on this commission to go and speak the truth to Israel. He tells them, they're not going to listen to you. And he tells them, I'm actually going to reduce Israel down to a stump. There's going to be this tiny remnant left. But make no mistake, God is, is sitting on the throne. God is in control. Now that chapter runs directly into a chapter about an earthly king named Ahaz. This is Isaiah chapter 7. And Ahaz is not the good king sitting on the throne in heaven. Ahaz is more of a typical king of Israel. Ahaz is king in Israel during during a brutal time. It's 735 BC, so 2,750 years ago. This guy is, is on the throne in Israel. And there is, as there kind of typically is for this whole part of history in the ancient Middle East, there is a horrific kind of danger that Israel is under. There's an alliance between two kings. One is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, which used to be united with Judah in Jerusalem, but now they're not anymore. I know this is politically complicated. We'll get, we're going to move quick because we've got to get through this part. Then there's the king of Syria, which is kind of the powerhouse in the region at the time. And these two people have combined forces to go and take out Jerusalem, to take out Ahaz. And Isaiah's message to Ahaz is, you have to stand firm. You have to have faith in God. You can't capitulate to these kings. You can't run to another nation and ask for help. You have to trust God. There's there's some amazing things that Isaiah does in this section. When he meets with Ahaz, he meets with him at a place called the washer's field, which is where people in Israel would go to wash their garments to make them white as snow. As remember this from chapter one. He brings with him his son, whose name in Hebrew, which, you know, I can't even pronounce, but it means a remnant shall return. 
Think about that stump that he just saw. Isaiah, even, just, even by now in chapter 7, we're early in this book, he's already starting to pull together these different threads and themes. And he tells Ahaz, you have to stand strong, you have to have faith. And he tells him, God said, you can ask for a sign, you can ask for any sign as high as heaven, and I'll show you, you know, that you can trust me. And Ahaz refuses the sign, but not because he's righteous, because he's, he's trying to put on a front. It's like false piety, right? And so Isaiah says, okay, if you're too good for a sign, God's going to give you one anyway. And this sign that he gives him is incredibly mysterious, and, and you've probably heard it before on Christmas, but I want to encourage you, hear this as if you had never heard it before. Hear this as if you had no association with it whatsoever, as if you were an Israelite in Israel in 735 BC under threat from these two foreign kings. Isaiah says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does that mean in Hebrew? God with us. Hey, good job, guys. That's awesome. And he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, if you're an Israelite living in this time, this doesn't sound like something that's going to happen in 700 years, does it? Because, I mean, those of us who are familiar with the New Testament, who's this ultimately about? This is the easiest question you're going to get this morning. You can give the classic Sunday school answer for this one. There's a joke that uh, Carol Smith used to tell that uh, a Sunday school teacher was talking to her class and she said, okay, kids, what's something that's, that's brown and fuzzy and likes to climb trees and likes to collect acorns? And one little boy was like, oh, man. That sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to go with Jesus. <laughs> I've, always, I've always loved that. In this case, it's correct. The ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is Jesus. We know this because the New Testament authors say so. But if you're listening to this in Isaiah's day, you go, oh, there's a boy who's going to be born, and we're calling him God with us. And by the time that kid's old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, the two kings we're worried about aren't going to be a problem. This sounds soon, and it's important that it sounds soon, because in two weeks, we're going to talk about another historical story in Isaiah that, that has everything to do with this prophecy. If you're listening to this in Isaiah's day, you're thinking, we have a bad king right now named Ahaz, but we're going to get a better one soon. Now, Isaiah goes on and on and about kind of the destruction and damage that's coming, because he says, hey, you're scared of these two kings. God's going to bring some, somebody else to take them out. And so your first thing is like, all right, awesome. But then he goes, but this new kingdom that's coming is going to be even worse than those guys. And the damage, yeah, ooh, and the damage that's coming is going to be even more horrible than you can imagine. And he goes into all this detail about, about the destruction that's coming, and it culminates in this statement. He says, They will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. The first thing God does in creation in Genesis 1 is speak and light breaks out into darkness. The destruction that's coming towards Israel is so heavy, is so intense, that the darkness is gonna be overwhelming the light. This is, again, just like the briars and thorns in the vineyard. This is uncreation language, creation coming undone. That's how bad it's gonna be because of their bad king, because of the bad grapes that are coming out of Israel. But then Isaiah makes another promise that's related to this Emmanuel kid that we just heard about. 
right after this about the gloom and anguish, he says, in the latter days, meaning now we're, now we're thinking maybe it's farther away, something's going to happen. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So something's going to happen that's going to cause this darkness that's overwhelmed the light to break back open into light again. It's creation again, new creation happening. He says, for to us a child is born. You've heard this verse before, right? To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. So now all of a sudden, the Emmanuel child, the son that's coming, is in charge of the whole nation. And now we're so used to thinking of Jesus as Emmanuel, none of us even noticed the fact that he never said that that kid was going to be king. He just said we're going to call him God with us, and by the time he's old enough to tell the difference between right and wrong, these two kings are going to be gone. Here, two chapters later, he says, the government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those names sound a little intense for a king, right? Any of those seem like, oh, geez, that's, that's a little strong for a human being. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, there are hints now that maybe this, this Emmanuel figure is going to be something different than just a king. He says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it. So now he's, he's a Davidic king. He's a son of David. This is good news, because if you're a Jew in this time, you go, oh good, that means that God's promise to David can come true for this guy. To establish it and to uphold it with what? Justice and righteousness, mishpat and tzedakah, the very things that the vineyard lacked from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this kingdom is going to be forever and it's going to correct the exact problems with Israel that are happening in Isaiah's day. Isaiah goes, you guys failed to practice mishpat and tzedakah, justice and righteousness. This king is going to do it. It's an incredible high point. It's like, it's like the most happy, comforting moment we've had so far in Isaiah. This king's coming and it's going to be good. Justice and righteousness are coming. But just in case you start to think like this is how the tone of Isaiah 1 through 12 ends, remember, there's a seventh woe we haven't seen yet. And it comes in the very next chapter in verse 1. Isaiah says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. In Isaiah 1, God said, what's justice and righteousness look like? It looks like you, Israel, caring for the widow and the orphan. Here he says, my people make widows and orphans their prey. This is a pretty good summary statement for Isaiah 1 through 12. There's a good messianic kingdom coming, justice and righteousness are coming, but before that happens, there is going to be this horrific, brutal destruction and judgment on Israel, and they're going to get reduced down to just a stump because they haven't practiced justice and righteousness, because they make widows their spoil and the fatherless their prey. It's incredibly brutal judgment. 
And again, this is kind of what you're going to see in Isaiah, is these, these horrible, brutal judgments interspersed with moments of comfort and hope. And those moments of comfort and hope end up being incredibly important for the people of Israel over the, ne- the next several hundred years, because things get really dark in Israel, and they stay really dark in Israel for a long time. Syria comes, Assyria comes, Babylon comes, Rome comes. Israel is just subdued by one nation after another over the next 700 years. And throughout all that time, they continue to develop these ideas about these prophecies that have been made about about this good Messiah figure that's coming. And there were tons of different kind of streams of thought about exactly what he was going to be like, but the basic idea is that a good king is coming who's going to correct all these problems, who's going to fix all of this brokenness, who's going to actually bring in that justice and righteousness that Israel was always supposed to have. The crazy thing, when you look at the story of the vineyard and the story of the woes, is that when that good king does come, he has words for Israel that are amazingly, amazingly similar to what Isaiah had to say. There's a sermon that Jesus preached that's, that's his most famous sermon, probably the most famous sermon in the world, called the Sermon on the Mount. That one's recorded in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's kind of biography of Jesus' life. Luke records almost the exact same sermon. It's a lot shorter, but it's, it's similar enough that most scholars say, hey, this is probably a sermon that Jesus preached regularly. So Matthew has him do it here and kind of in this setting, and then Luke records a different version of it. In that sermon, Jesus pronounces some blessings, and then he pronounces a set of woes of his own. And the overlap with Isaiah's is just like mind-blowing. But let's start with the blessings. So this is 750-ish years after these prophecies we just read. And Jesus preaches this sermon. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets." Now, this is a beautiful pronouncement of good news for the poor, right? But if you're paying attention to Isaiah, what Jesus is saying here shouldn't be shocking or shouldn't be that new. Isaiah and all the rest of the prophets and the entire Old Testament law over and over again make it crystal clear that that God cares about the poor. He wants his people to lift up the poor. He he wanted Israel to be a place where the poor were so taken care of that their land would look completely different than every other land. I mean, there were laws in Israel. Every seven years, you didn't uh, reap your own crops. You just left them so the poor could eat them once every seven years. You lose a whole season so the poor can eat. And when you reap your crops every single time, there's a specific way you were supposed to do it to leave the edges untrimmed so the poor could come and eat that stuff. I mean, we could do examples of this all day long, but, but you've seen it in Isaiah. God cares about justice and righteousness. He cares about lifting up the oppressed and the poor and and those who are suffering. So what Jesus says here is right in the stream of that thought. But in the last verse, he adds something really interesting. He says, these blessings are about the fact that that you're you're suffering on account of the Son of Man. Your reputation is, is being spurned. People are reviling you because of me. And man, when that happens, he says, you're in good company. That's what That's what their fathers did to people like Isaiah, people who spoke the truth. 
He says, you're poor now, but the kingdom of God is for you if you're with me. You're hungry now, but, but you're going to be satisfied beyond your wildest dreams in the future. You're crying now, but joy is coming for you. It's good news. The poor have something incredible to look forward to. And there are probably some of you here today for whom this is incredibly good news, who, who you don't know where your next meal is coming from. You don't know where you're going to sleep tonight. This is good news for you. But for most of us, it's what Jesus says next that we really need to pay attention to. Think about the woes of Isaiah and read what Jesus says. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If you're anything like me, the first thing you think when you read this is, man, thank goodness I'm not rich, right? You go, I'm not the rich person. The rich person lives somewhere other than where I live. Maybe I'm doing okay. I'm not rich. Uh, What I want to to suggest to you, and and this is done in, in true humility because this is about me, is that if you have regular, reliable food, and if you know where you're going to sleep tonight and for the next few months, this is the category we fall in. Because if you look at, at humanity, at the human experience for all of human history, and the human experience for most people alive on earth today, two-thirds of the world today, man, we are, most of us are, incredibly rich. Now, again, like I said before, I know that that doesn't apply to 100% of us. There are people in the room today who you don't have reliable food. You don't know where your next meal comes from. Jesus just had good news for you. But here he says, and and I honestly believe this is a message that most of us need to pay attention to. He says, your riches, it's not a blessing, it's a curse. Why? Because you've received your consolation. Week one, we talked about this word for consolation. It also means comfort. In Greek, it's, it's paraklesin. And in the Greek translation of Isaiah, this word happens over and over and over again. And what it always means in Isaiah and the other prophets is the comfort that God is going to bring to his people in the midst of suffering. This is God comforting his suffering people. But he says, the rich, you've got yours already. And remember, he told the poor, Yours is the kingdom of God. You're, going to be, you're hungry now, you're going to be full. You're sad now, you're going to be happy. It's a complete reversal. He says, no, yours isn't the kingdom of God. Yours is the comfort you get now from your riches. You're full now, you're going to be hungry. You laugh now, but you're going to mourn and weep when the things that make you joyful run out. Because all of these things are, are unbelievably transient. They're going to pass away someday. He says, woe to you when all people speak well of you. Because the people in the Old Testament who had the best reputations were people whose job it was, who made a living off of putting lies into the mouth of God. Remember, the opposite of this is people who have a bad reputation because they've aligned themselves with Jesus. So here in its opposite, we see because you didn't align yourself with Jesus, everybody likes you because you don't tell them the truth. It's bad news for the rich. 
and it's incredibly, incredibly difficult for me to read. It always is. And when I looked at it really close this week, it was, it was even worse. It's like, oh my gosh, I do have my comfort now. So when Jesus comes, he brings good news for the poor. And if you read the stories in the Gospels, you see who are the people who, who receive Jesus the best. This is, again, a super easy one, I promise. The poor, right? The poor, the unpopular, the outcast, the suffering. These are the people who flock to Jesus. Picture, picture the blind beggar saying, son of David, have mercy on me. The people who flock to him, who receive him, and who receive his message are the poor the suffering, the outcast, the people that nobody cares about. Who are the people who had the hardest time with Jesus? The powerful, the wealthy, the influential, the popular. Those are the people who rejected him. And I think the reason for that is right here in Jesus' statement. It's about comfort level. The rich, when you're comfortable, man, you don't know how to be helpless. You don't know what it means to be Helpless, literally. I mean, from the day I was born, and I know this is true for most of you, our culture has told me to get to the point where I need no help from anyone. Work hard so that you need no help, right? You have your comfort. The poor, the poor know what it is to need help. Most of you guys know my, my primary job here is I'm the mission pastor, so that involves quite a bit of travel to developing countries where we have partnerships with people like Yaisel from Cuba, who, who shared earlier. And um, I'll tell you what, I've seen, I've seen horrific poverty. Um, I've seen kids, uh, orphans who live in the city dump in Port-au-Prince in Haiti. I've seen beggars in Southeast Asia who, who are missing limbs because they stepped on a landmine. I've seen entire towns that are just made out of tarps and cardboard. Um, I, I mean, I've, I've just seen, I've seen that suffering, and I've come back here and seen the difference time and time again. But I, honestly, I really believe I didn't actually understand what poverty was and what richness was until I went to Tanzania in 2012. Um, my, my wife and I took a team to a village called Mkuyu. It's, it's completely off the grid. It's so off the grid, the story I always tell is that when we arrived the first time, we've been there a couple times, when we arrived the first time, my wife Christina was the first Asian person they had ever seen ever. So we get off the boat and the only guy in the village who speaks English looks at her and goes, that one is a different color. <laughs> Super awesome. Um, and so it's completely off the grid. They're, they're, I mean, they're completely distanced from any sort of modern anything. And um, while we were there, we got called to the village prayer hut to pray for a kid um, who was in the middle of dying. And we went, and, and he was a teenager. He was probably like 14, 15. And he was there with his dad. His stomach was just distended, and, and he was in, in horrible agony. And um, one of the people on our team who had a medical background said, it's appendicitis. Let me do this. I actually didn't even plan to do this. How many of you guys have had appendicitis? You had appendicitis. Fairly routine issue here in the States, but there's no medical care there. In fact, I remember Connie, our, our partner missionary in, uh, in Tanzania, I remember her looking me in the eye while we were there and saying, welcome to the world without medicine. Um, and so we left and, and that boy died. He died about a week later. 
And we came home, and um, within like a month of arriving at home, my little sister Haley got appendicitis. And she actually got like a really, really bad case, about as bad as it ever goes. Her appendix ruptured, which is, is uncommon and extremely painful. She was in agony, but she's so nice and so tough that like she didn't go to the hospital till it had already happened because she doesn't like to complain <laughs> about horrific pain happening. She's like, I've got a stomach ache. Um, <laughs> you don't have a stomach ache. You have a medical emergency happening right now. So she got appendicitis and she went to the hospital and, and it was really, it honestly was really bad. She was there for several days and it was really scary. But after those several days, she walked out of the hospital. And so, man, when I think about what is the difference between, between riches and poverty, it's not just how much money you have. It's the fact that last night, we celebrated my little sister's 20th birthday. But that boy died five years ago. And that family lost their son and brother. It's, it impacts absolutely everything about you. It is so much more complicated than we think it is to be poor, to be truly poor. And so when Jesus comes with good news, and his good news is, hey, I've got something for you, but you can't contribute anything to it. The poor get that. They get it. They go, yes, I've got empty hands and empty pockets. I need help. They know what that looks like. The comfortable, we do not know how to do that. It is incredibly hard for us. And so Jesus says, your riches, they're a curse, not a blessing. I mean, I even think about when it comes to comfort, even our generosity most of the time comes down to basically the same thing. I mean, if I feel guilty, which many of you might right now, I apologize, that's genuinely not my intention, and you give to make yourself feel less guilty, you're still using your riches to comfort yourself. You're using the exact same tool to scratch the same itch. And it won't last. Jesus says, blessed are the poor because the poor know how to come with empty hands and say, please help me. I'm desperate. Here's the good news. There is good news. <laughs> what all of scripture, and especially Isaiah, and especially Isaiah chapter 1 through 12, want you to know is that when it comes to your spiritual condition, you are every bit as poor as the poorest person on the face of the earth. Your hands, your pockets are just as empty as theirs are spiritually. Spiritually, since Genesis 3, every single one of us were the orphan living in the dump. We're the ones who are, are born into this slum of, of sin. And you can't get out. You're completely helpless. And so Jesus comes, and the reason the gospel is good news is because the gospel equalizes the rich and the poor. It provides a solution for the poor, but it also provides escape from the trap of riches if you can realize that you've got nothing to contribute to your salvation. Nothing. Spiritually, you are the kid in the slum with nothing to contribute, and a good king has to come and spend absolutely 
everything to save you. The story of the gospel is the story of the, the, the spiritually richest human being in the history of the world who had everything and chose to come as a baby born into an oppressed nation, into scandal with his parents, into abject poverty. And when you see Jesus on the cross, you see the richest one of all completely empty, having spent everything on behalf of the poor. The gospel is the equalizer. It makes you realize I may be materially rich, but I am as poor as the poorest person on earth spiritually. My pockets are completely empty. I've got, I've got nothing to contribute. And when you come to Jesus like that, the way that I have seen the materially poor come to the materially rich with your hands out saying, I just need help. I've got nothing. The rich king saves you. He lifts you up out of that spiritual poverty by spending all of his riches to do it. So the danger of, the, of wealth, the reason I'm convinced that Jesus says, woe to you who are rich because you have received your comfort, the danger there is the fact that you're going to rely on that comfort and it's going to run out. You got to come to Jesus with empty hands and trust that he's going to pay everything. He is going to pay your way entirely with no help from you whatsoever. Now, it's amazing. Um, another example of this comes later. Jesus has his own vineyard story. It's a little different than Isaiah's, but it, it's, it's amazing the overlap. Jesus says, he tells a parable in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where he says, there's an owner who had a vineyard. Think, if you're thinking Isaiah, right? Isaiah told a story about an owner who had a vineyard. And Jesus says, and he let some tenants kind of take care of it for him, watch the vineyard for him. And he sent some of his servants to go collect from those tenants. But when the servants got there, the tenants of the vineyard beat them up and threw them out. So the owner of the vineyard said, oh man, what am I going to do? I got it. I'll send who? My son. They'll respect him. It's his vineyard. He's going to inherit it someday. And the son goes to the vineyard and the tenants of that vineyard, they do, they do the rich thing. They do the influential thing. They do the powerful thing. They say, this is the heir of the vineyard. If we take him out, this could be our vineyard. And so they kill the son of the vineyard owner and throw him out of the vineyard. Jesus says, so what, what's the owner of the vineyard going to do? He's going to take those tenants out and give the vineyard to someone else. See, Israel forgot whose vineyard it was. And when the owner of that vineyard himself showed up, they didn't recognize him. And so as we continue into the kind of the next section of this series, which is going to be called The Rise of the Day Star, the question we have to ask is, what is going on with these people? Why can't they understand what's going on? God sends servants like Isaiah and they get beat up and thrown out and not listened to. What's behind the scenes? Who is behind the curtain? We saw this snake in Genesis 3. Where did he go? Did he kind of like leave the story at that point? Or is he still around? You've got to keep reading this book. You've got to stay in your small groups. You have to keep coming on Sunday because Isaiah is going to answer these questions in a completely different way than we're used to thinking about them. You might think you have a pretty good handle on who that snake was in Genesis 3. Um, Isaiah is going to show us 
It's something completely bigger and more profound than we ever could have even imagined. But for today, um, I really just want to leave you guys with this. I know it's, it's a dark, heavy message for many of us. It is for me. But I truly believe that for those of us who can come to grips with just how desperate we really are outside of Jesus, with just how how empty, how poor we are spiritually aside from Jesus, if we can come to grips with that, this is the best news on earth because Jesus says you don't have to stay like that. You don't have to be poor forever. I'm the good king and I'll spend everything to lift you out of that, that poverty. And that is available to every single one of us. And for those of you who already know Jesus, that's also the only fuel for real generosity. Remember I talked about how if you give because you feel guilty, you'll just stop giving as soon as you scratch that itch. The only fuel for genuine, ongoing generosity that that won't run dry is the gospel. You have to know that you have been shown so much generosity and give not out of guilt, not out of desperation, but out of, out of joy and gratefulness, trying to imitate that generosity that was shown to you. Every single one of us can do a better job at that, but don't let guilt be the motivating factor. Let the generosity that has been shown to you be the motivating factor. And for those of you who don't know Jesus, let me tell you, the gospel is, is it gives you this incredible bad news countered by even better good news. It says, you are more lost than you could ever imagine, and yet you are more loved than you ever thought possible. There is rescue available today. Let's pray. Father, I am, I am the target of your woes. I believe that, and I feel it because I've, I've, I've seen what poverty looks like and time and time again, I have, um, I've come back here to the, the comfort and the feeling of, of conviction has faded. And so, Lord, I thank you, first of all, that you don't save me when I get my act together, but you saved me when I was at my worst. And Lord, I thank you for the fact that you were willing to give everything to rescue us. I pray that everyone in here, whether they know you or not, would be able to somehow at the same time come to grips with, with the depth of our spiritual poverty and also to recognize the riches of grace that have been poured out upon us. I think of the verses we read at communion and the fact that this bread that you will eat and never grow hungry again is available to everyone. Everyone who will come and believe. So Lord, I pray that today you would would remind us of the generosity that has been shown to us Help us to be generous as a response to that and help us to recognize and appreciate the great grace that has been given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.